Peace be with you. Uh, if you got your Bible, you can open it to 1 Corinthians 3. Turn there, turn it on, whatever you prefer. You can follow along. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 17, as has been mentioned throughout the liturgy. And Pastor Eric just mentioned we're, we've been in exploring the Holy Spirit together, trying to see what the scriptures are saying about him. Last week we looked at it's, the Spirit isn't a what, it's a who. Um, and today we're going to keep going into this and kind of, tr okay, who, who, what is he up to, you know, and what is he doing and where is he at? Uh, and so uh, Paul's going to help us here. The Apostle Paul will be going to other places as well. So if you want to just keep your Bible on or out throughout this, um, uh, I'm going to uh, numerous places. But t this morning, I'm just going to start in 1 Corinthians 3, starting at, at, at verse 1. Uh, Paul's tackling the issue of division in the church. And um, here's what he says. But, uh, but I, uh, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, uh, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I, I, I fed you with milk, not uh, solid food, for you were not ready for it. And, and even now, you're not ready. You are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way for when one says i follow paul and another i follow apollos are you not being merely human what then is apollos what is paul servants through whom you believed as the lord assigned to each i, I planted uh, but apollos watered but but god gave the growth so, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is, is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are, are God's field. You're God's building. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a kid, uh, as I mentioned frequently around here, I, I grew up in the church. When I, I didn't mind going, when I was a te young teenager, I didn't mind going to church so much, um, but for not reasons that were, <laughs> that you would think. I didn't mind going to church because um, I would head into, after Sunday school was over, early in the morning on Sunday, I would sneak out the back of the building and I would walk down the road to the local Ameristop so I could buy uh, chicken fingers and, and, and potato wedges with my allowance. And I would sit on the curb and eat them. 
this is this image is this is literally the definition textbook of a pastor's kid. So, um, and then and then you know, greasy fingered and full, I would slip back into the church and you know raise my hands like as if nothing had happened. Um, so Sunday mornings was uh, chicken fingers and uh, potato wedges because um, at at a, at a certain point my conception of that space and that time was, you know, a 40 to 50 minute guilt lecture uh, mixed in with some Michael W. Smith songs. And I, and I, honestly, Chicken Fingers was more exciting. And th that changed, of course, over time. You know, I, I, eventually I started to develop a sense, a mysterious sense in my teen brain that in that space, something was going on. It was like an alternative world was opening up occasionally. I mean, I didn't really know exactly what was happening, but I, I got some sense that um, I, I would occasionally get these God sightings. And I, I don't mean like um, prophetic, like visuals. I mean, real things like people talking about, I started to understand that people were talking about failure and loss and um, they would talk about things like forgiveness and, 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 and talk about things like being loved. And then that started to really kind of make me realize something special is happening here. And so um, while chicken fingers were still great, um, I, I started to realize that this space, something about this space, the church space was sacred. And, that, you know, that ha had ebbs and flows to it as I grew. Um, there's a lot of Christians that, you know, that's just the reality, church folk. That what is it's going on inside of us? that um, we would get to the point where we would find so many other things more exciting than what we do uh, when we gather. Um, the writer, uh, she's, she's practically a theologian to me, but Annie Dillard has a, just a fascinating word about what I think is happening and, and kind of musing about this in her book uh, called uh, Teaching a Stone to Talk. She writes this, why, why do we people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute. The, the tourists are having coffee and donuts on deck seat. Presumably someone is minding the ship, correcting the course, avoiding icebergs and shoals, fueling the engines, watching the radar screen, nothing, noting weather reports um, radio, radioed in from shore. No one would dream of asking a tourist to do these things. Alas, among the tourists on deck seat, drinking coffee and eating donuts, we find the captain and all the ship's officers and all the ship's crew. The officers chat, they swear, they wink a bit at slightly raw jokes like regular people. The crew members have funny accents. The wind seems to be picking up. On the whole, I, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what, what sort of power we so blithely evoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. What's Annie Dillard saying to you? To me, I've always loved this, this section in her book. To me, I, I just don't think that we kill or diminish a Sunday morning by our evil sins and, and our unworthy hearts. While there is plenty of that, and, and it matters, I, I grant that, sin matters. 
But I don't think that that's what's killing a Sunday. I mean, it's not like God didn't see our messy, disheveled selves uh, when he stooped into the mess and came after us and rescued us. I mean, as, as Paul says in Romans 5, 6, he declared that when we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That Christ died for me and you as ungodly people, not cleaned up godly people. And so it's not like as if, you know, he looks down on a Sunday morning and sees the evil and thinks, well, that Sunday will never happen and nothing exciting is ever going to happen. That's not the issue that I see. No, no, most people, and like I said, I've been around the church my whole life, and, and, and most people on a Sunday that I've ever ran into, almost in every church I've ever been in, seem pleasant and polite enough, honestly. From what I can tell, most people, myself included, censor our sin enough on a Sunday morning to get through it re relatively unscathed. That's not the issue that I see. Sunday service killers aren't people with a lack of manners. There are people with a lack of imagination. M myself included at times, sitting on the curb, eating my chicken tenders. Seems to me that we kill a Sunday by our loss of enchantment, our loss of understanding or thinking about or reflecting upon the privilege and the mystery much more so than our wrong interpretations of scripture or awkward presentations on stage, which we have in spades. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I, I think that, that maturity in Christ, I, I think that Christian formation has plenty of ordinary moments, you know, moments that don't include um, incredible emotional outbursts and, and, and excitement. Uh, I, I do believe that most of formation does take place in the ordinary, but um, and that does include, of course, Sunday mornings. But there are times, you know, just when, you know, the body just isn't energized enough for a sense of wonder because we're just wore out. The flesh is weak, um, you know, but the spirit is willing. But still, I just can't help but wonder, and I wonder if you do too, I just can't help but wonder what would happen if we reimagined the kind of power that we invoke in Jesus' name. That, 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 that your issue and my issue, particularly in our behavior, isn't so much a lack of ability to follow a set of rules, but just a lack of imagination. That maybe if we understood both on Sunday mornings and when we go out into the world and into our schools and into our family rooms and into our workplaces, what is possible inside of us, not by our power, but some power that's just so mysterious and so strange. One of the sobering encouragements that you probably are well aware of, the sobering encouragements you can take from the New Testament is after Jesus' resurrection and the church is formed, it, did, it sure didn't take them very long to start making mistakes, did it? That's <laughs> pretty much what uh, these books are past the Gospels just pretty much lays out uh, for us. Um, they immediately started making mistakes. Um, in the words of one of my mentors, getting saved is easy. Uh, being a community is really hard. And the New Testament clearly lays that out. But what's fascinating to me is one of the key arguments Paul and the other apostles, like Peter, uh, used to motivate early churches like this church, this Corinthian church, um, back into right thinking and right living wasn't a list of rules as much as really in just invoking their imagination. That's how these early pastors, first pastors, saw the way forward with a church that was full of mistakes. Let's talk to their imagination. 
here in the, the, this letter, this portion that you just read a minute ago, to this church in a Roman colony uh, of Corinth, Paul did it through a rhetorical question, didn't he? Do you not know? That's right, sarcasm, pastoral sarcasm at its best. Do you not know that you're a temple? A temple, a place where, the, where God's spirit dwells in you. The word you in the Greek there is, is actually plural. So it's literally, Paul's literally saying, do you not know that you alls are a temple? Temple. Temple. It's not a word you use a lot and I use a lot. We don't think about going to temples. Um, our building certainly doesn't look like a, a temple. I can remember once upon a time, there, there was a point in which we were looking for a physical space as a church. Many of you are around for that. Um, I, and I met at the, that Episcopal building. Um, we were talking about renting that space. And boy, that building looks a little bit more like a temple, doesn't it, than ours. We got the ugly duck, duckling right behind two really beautiful buildings. You know, it's an image for me all the time that God has a sense of humor. Um, temple, it's not something that strikes your imagination immediately. It would have struck their imagination. I mean, imagine yourself getting into arguments over the preachers. We have multiple preachers that come up here. I like it that way. This church is not built around a personality. Um, thank God. And, but imagine that you had a preference, because I know you don't have preferences. And, but imagine that you did. And you thought about, oh, I've been formed by Pastor Eric, or I've been formed by, you know, these sorts of things, these silly things. Imagine, imagine getting so uh, committed to those preferences that you begin to form factions and divisions in the church over it. Imagine that. And then imagine, of course, that I, I, I got up in front of you after it just got out of hand, and, and, I, and I said, stop this silly, childish nonsense. You're a temple. And temples don't act like that. Now, you might be like, that is a very strange way to argue uh, us back into right thinking and right behavior. Um, but, but Paul knows exactly what he's doing. This is the only time he does this, by the way. Um, he, he, Paul did this in 1 Corinthians 6 as well he, when addressing sexual immorality, not divisions in the church, like arguing over pastors and preachers. He picked up, what he did was he picked up on one of the slogans that they were using during their day, which is something that past really, really, really wise pastors do is they just listen to the local language. And the local language in their day was, uh, they would say things like, all things are lawful for me. Um, or food is meant for the stomach and stomach is meant for the food. And so what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 6, you can go back and read it, is he, he brings out the local slogans that they were using. Um, and in other words, these Christians were saying things like this, um, in light of Christ dying for our sin, I'm free from the rules and regulations right, the, of, of religion. And besides, now, now I live a spiritual life. And so the physical life, the physical realm, my physical self, I can do whatever I want with this. Going so far as to go to brothels and sleeping with prostitutes. This is what was taking place. It just doesn't matter much what I do with my physical body. And Paul's like, this is silliness. And so he whistles what he says. This is uh, verse 15 through 20 in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and 
make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin is a person commits as outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And here he goes again, right here. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. <laughs> You've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. He does this in Ephesians 2 when he's tackling the issue of racism, like ethnic superiority. These Christians were fighting with each other or looking down on each other. These Jewish believers and these Greek Gentile believers were coming together and they just weren't getting along very well. And Paul addresses that. It's the same thing there. He says, in Christ, you're being joined with other Christians to form a holy temple. This is Ephesians 2.22. A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he, he does this multiple times. Of all the images and metaphors that a pastor could use or arguments that he could make, is temple the best one? Probably, honestly. I mean, when you really think it through, when the ancient people would have heard, these people would have heard temple, they would have had an immediate feeling and, and picture, you know, the way you would have an immediate feeling or picture when you visit a family member's house or something that you grew up in, and it's like you immediately get this sense or this feeling. They would have had that as well when they heard the word temple. The temple began in the wilderness. You can read about this in Exodus. The temple began in the wilderness, but it was just a tent structure called the tabernacle that eventually became much more sophisticated under King Solomon's rule. Um, he was handed the plans from his father, David, and he built this incredibly beautiful, sophisticated structure um, on, uh, on, you know, basically on top of a mountain in Jerusalem. And, and, and it was just elaborate. It was, it was made of stone, cedar, gold, fine linens, lots of incense. Um, it was magical. And it was not economically conservative. It was lavish because it was the place where the divine presence of God came down. When it was inaugurated under Solomon's rule, fire literally did come down and consume the sacrifices. And people just bowed down, if you can imagine that. The temple wasn't a place you played games in, but it wasn't stodgy or dull either. It was, although it was just a building, a carefully constructed building of rooms, it was animating and transcendent. I mean, if you think about what it meant that, that God wanted to come down and dwell on earth with people, and he wanted a place for that to take place. And so the temple was sacred, it was holy, it was set apart. It was a place for confession. It was a place for sacrifice. It was a place for prayer. It was a place to sing songs. It was a place for joy. It was the singular place, right? In their day, it was the singular place that communicated God wants to be reconciled to broken human beings. And so that's why when the temple got corrupt, which it repeatedly did throughout the storyline of the Bible, it got corrupt with exploitation, ethnic superiority, favoritism, oppression. And Jesus went in, and this is the, probably one of the one scenes that stands out to you of Jesus's life. Jesus went in and into, into Jerusalem and into the temple, and he flipped the tables, and he had a whip, and he was going crazy, right? Why? Because the temple 
the sacred space where God is meant to come down and dwell with his people in peace. And, and, and it was supposed to communicate reconciliation and redemption and all these things. It was corrupt. And Jesus is so saddened by it, angered by it. And then when he's confronted, because religious leaders don't like when you come into sacred spaces and cause a scene, and so when they confront him about it, you remember what he said, what he did? He did a Jesus thing that he, Jesus does. He gives them a riddle. This is John 2. So the Jews said to him, what, what, what sign do you, can you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, would destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, well, it's... <laughs> It has taken 46 years to build the temple and you will raise it up in three days. And then John clues us in, uh, but he was speaking about his body. And so, you know, you have Jesus at this point. Now Jesus understood himself. This is how he saw it. This is how Jesus understood his whole life and his mission. He saw himself as he located the temple in him, right? The new place for reconciliation. Because although the people in that time in Jesus' day, they were very centered and focused on the temple. The temple was very important to them. However, they had drifted so far from what it meant, so far from the privilege and the sense of responsibility that it meant to have it. If you know you can have access to God by his mercy, how could you possibly exploit people? If you know that you can have the divine presence of God, come down and fill a space. How could you possibly go into that space and exploit people for selfish gain or oppress people or look down on people or, or, or whatever, be filled with hate? How could you possibly do that when a God who is so separated from us wants to come down and dwell with us in peace? If you know you can have that by mercy and by grace, how could you possibly then look down on other people? So when Paul is making this argument to these churches, this real physical temple in Jerusalem is still operating. It's in the background when he wrote this. But for Paul, it's not the meeting place anymore, right? It's the Christ's death and resurrection and ascension has changed all that. He's reminding them there's no, there's no need for that structure anymore because, because now you're the animating transcendent place. You are. Your body. It's not that your physical self doesn't matter. Your physical body in Christ is now the animating transcendent space that's supposed to be communicating that God wants to be at peace and be reconciled with man through Christ. That's amazing. In Jesus, we can be reconciled. When you come to Jesus and you really believe in him, you become that temple. You're like, well, I didn't, I didn't ask to become a temple. I just asked for forgiveness. Well, these are the terms that he set. You're a temple. You become that temple. You become that dwelling place where God lives by his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's presence inside you. And both individually as 1 Corinthians 6 is addressing, and corporately, as 1 Corinthians 3 is addressing, that we just read. When we come together, we come together to form and build a holy temple. In Jesus, your life 
you're literally, your literal body becomes the place that's sacred. You are sacred. Your body in Christ is sacred and set apart for holy purposes. That's meant to feel weighty. It's shared space where God dwells with a person and a community. When my kids fight now, my daughters fight now, their choice of hurtful words to each other now is, you're not my sister anymore, right? When I'm in the, when, when I'm in the room, it, I, it, what, I, what I do is I gasp and chuckle, right? Because for obvious reasons, well, you don't have a choice in the matter, right? This is who your sister is. You must figure out what it means to be in relationship with her. You must figure out what it means to share space with her. You can't get rid of her. Friends, when you come to Christ, you take on his life, his death, his resurrection. You don't get to tell the, the, the Holy Spirit to take a vacation. You, you have to figure out what it means to share space with him. That's your life now is figuring it out. And I know it's difficult, right? Because he's invisible and we're like, well, what's going on? I don't really see fire. I don't see doves flapping around. What is this thing? I, it's, it's mysterious, I know, but he's there. He's present. This is a wild thing for us to consider. And this, I, I think, takes a really long time to absorb that you don't belong to yourself anymore. You maybe thought you started out that way, but things are different now. In Christ, you're free from religion and you're free from trying to prove or earn your forgiveness and peace, but you are not free from the immense privilege and responsibility that comes with it. You're not free from the privilege. I don't know how you view your life or how you think about where you came from, but regardless of your background, if you're, if you're a Christian, you're being called to completely reimagine how precious and valuable not only is your body, which is incredibly valuable to God, your physical body, but also your story. Your story is precious. Your story is valuable to God. And, and I don't care, you know, and I know, I, I know this very well, like a lot of us have a lot of stories that we can't possibly think that this story is precious and valuable, but it is to God. The other, this weekend, I was sitting down at the counter talking to my oldest, and she was super amped up. She's been saving her allowance money, things like money that she earns and things like this. And she kind of brought out all of her piggy banks. And um, she's stuffing all the money into, into one piggy bank. And I'm like, you know, you really ought to think about you know, setting up a budget here. <laughs> um, and she's like, what are you talking about? And she has this one separate jar that's for um, giving to, to the church. And I noticed that um, the offering jar uh, was just like nickels and dimes. And the other, the other piggy bank had a lot of cash. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I said to her, you know, hey, seems like you're, little stingy here and 
little generous over here in terms of what you're going to keep for yourself. And, 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 and God loved her. She was super sweet. She just looked at me kind of like, well, what do you mean? You know, just like working through it. And so I was like, well, you know, and I, I, I was trying to help her understand how it works and how we think about what we have and what's been given to us. And so she, she said, well, okay, how much? So she starts reaching in and pulling all the cash from her piggy bank. And she opens the jar for the offering uh, bank, so to speak. And she says, how much do I put in? And I'm like, well, I don't know. You figure it out. It's what I tell the church. So, <laughs> and then she looks at me and I realize this is unhelpful. So I said, well, this is traditionally how people go about it. And I start talking about percentages and, you know, and 10%, this sort of thing. And, I, and, 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 I, and, you know, and I saw so I'm kind of like maybe weekly or monthly, you can set aside a certain amount that you know you're going to give to the church. And, and I looked at her because she was so willing to do it. And, and I said, do you understand why you do it? Like, do you get why? And she didn't know. And, and I said, well, look, as Christian people, like we don't think we own anything. It's all a gift. And, and what we're trying to like work out is this idea that, that Christ is redeeming the world and he's redeemed me and that we're trying to express that and communicate that with our body and our stuff. And she said to me, it doesn't seem like it's working very well. She's a theologian, right? That's an honest reflection. Is it because, his, is it because Christ's work is not powerful enough or is it that we lack imagination? that we lack an imagination for the fact that he actually is willing and wants to redeem the world. And that as Dillard says, as Annie Dillard said, we just don't believe a word of it. We struggle to believe a word of it. Your life story is precious to God in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And I don't think, and let me just encourage you and brag on you in a bit, and this isn't positive pop psychology. You know, there are people, I don't care how you think of your story, where you're from or what you've been through, but there's not a single dull Christian in the world. There's no such thing as a dull, boring Christian story. No way, man. Think about what you've been through. Think about the kind of comparing and competing that you've participated in or you've perpetuated in your life. Think about your um, historical or maybe even current sex life and what's going on there, and the things that you have, you have done with your body, and the things that you have per, perpetuated. Um, think about the kind of family failures and fallouts um, that you've participated in over your lifetime. Think, think about the kind of snobbery and judgmentalism that you've been filled with at times. Think about how family or career has been far more important than your spiritual calling in Christ. Now, if you're listening to these things and I'm mentioning, you're like, I don't have any of these things. Man, friend, we have a whole new set of problems and I'm not addressing you. Because as my, the way I see it is, is the vast majority of people that I know deep down are deeply aware of these sorts of things that follow them in their story. And they're, they're very ashamed of them. And what I've come to realize is, is it's fascinating to me 
that you take all that junk that I have, that many of you have, that kind of a story, and you have to imagine the fact that God chooses by his own divine will, he chooses to insert himself into that particular story and say, I'm going to make that one my temple. What kind of God does that? That's super strange to me. There are far cleaner stories, far more interesting stories that he could choose to make a temple, make a dwelling place for his spirit to live in. But this is who he is. This is the kind of God that we talk about here. This is the kind of God that we have in this book, a God that chooses really broken stories and to say, I'm going to make that my temple where I'll dwell. And so whatever space you move into, by his spirit, you don't have anything to prove. You have nothing to prove, but you absolutely have immense privilege to steward. You bear the presence of God in your body. In every space you walk into, you have the opportunity to express that God wants to dwell with broken sinners through his son, Jesus. That's what he's accomplished. And so as you, as you come to the table this morning, I would encourage you to examine a bit of your own story and consider that the Lord's sacred meal is meant to strengthen your imagination, <laughs> your imagination, right? Your heart, your mind, all of it, to think it through, that this bread represents Christ's body broken for you, and this cup of wine represents Christ's blood shed for you. Christ died as a payment for your life to join you to himself. And so as you come, take the time that you need, come to this station or this station. You don't have to be a member here, but you, you do need to be someone who is professing Jesus as Lord. That needs to be genuine in your heart and in your mind. And I will remind you this, that Paul says in Ephesians 4, that although we can do things that grieve his Holy Spirit, we can't tell him where to go. We can't tell him where to go. And because of Jesus, he's decided to take up residence in you and in this space. That's why for me. And I would encourage you to reflect upon it, to be humbled by it, <laughs> and allow it to even bring you great joy because it is immense joy, the fact that he would choose to insert himself into a place like this. Let us pray. Father, we love you and we thank you this morning. And we, we, we can't quite possibly imagine <laughs> what you have planned for those that come to you. And you've called us, we hear your voice, so many of us do, and we're still trying to work out what it means to have the Holy Spirit residing in us. We pray that over time, we trust that over time, it'll make more sense to us. Help us become your field, help us to become your building. Help us to understand fully what it means to be your temple and let it change us over time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.